Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Peter Schiff of Euro Pacific and of Schiff Gold. Uh, crowd favorite. I always love catching up with Peter. We spent a long time today talking about the health of the American banking sector. Uh, and where the next fracture line or where the, the vulnerable points might be. Now, obviously, last March, we saw the collapse of a handful of banks with larger assets in total than the entire uh, bank collapse that occurred in 2008, just between three banks, you know, two of them, First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank. When, when these banks collapsed, what was notable to me was how Jamie Dimon swooped in to assist with the restructuring of this uh, this crash. Now, very similar, by the way, to how his predecessor, the real JP Morgan, did in 1907 during the Knickerbocker crisis. It was a very, very similar, uh, you know, banks got over leveraged, there was a bank run, and JP Morgan gathered all the stakeholders from Wall Street and the government into his office and essentially outlaid, uh, rolled out how things were going to go, you know, uh, under his watch. And he personally bailed out a lot of these banks and came out obviously massively winning. He essentially uh, consolidated the American Steel Company under his thumb through these negotiations. Now, when Jamie Dimon swooped in last March, I was wondering, I was like, he's going to come out smelling like a rose. And sure enough, JP Morgan Bank just reported their 2023 uh, earnings posting a record $50 billion in profit. So, you know, scooping up those accounts, winning the auction of First Republic obviously paid off handsomely. The question that I had for Peter and what we spent a lot of time discussing was, is this consolidation going to continue and what does that look like? And so, we covered a lot of ground here today and uh, and ran through all the, the various stakeholders that are holding American debts and what the consequence of, of this might be in the near future for them. So we also touched on the upcoming American election. I couldn't help but pick his brain, but uh, you're going to love this one. As always, right beneath this video, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish a weekly essay to over 40,000 investors, sharing my key takeaways from conversations just like this and plenty others. And we deep dive a bit further into the psychology of investing, which is where our best decisions and our worst decisions are made, right? How we manage our emotional state through these markets. So hit that link beneath this uh, piece of content if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It comes out every Sunday. And here is Peter Schiff. Enjoy. All right. Here I am with Peter Schiff. Peter, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, great to see you again, Jay. I wish I was going to be uh, out there with you guys in Vancouver next week, but just... Too much travel time right now. Next year we'll get you, man. I know. I know the deal. <laughs> I know what we got to do now. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So look, here's where I want to start. Recalling last March's banking crisis, you know, First Republic, Silicon Valley, there was this big fallout, some rapid bailouts, all of this stuff. I found myself wondering who's going to be the winner here, right? And the way that Jamie Dimon swooped in to structure a lot of that disorder led me to believe that it was going to be JP Morgan. And they just posted a $50 billion net profit for 2023. They had a crazy year, obviously scooped up a bunch of those bank accounts and won the first Republic auction. What's your take on the health of the, uh, you know, simultaneously those Citigroup's looking to cut 20,000 jobs right now. So what's your take on the health of the United States banking sector right now, Peter? Yeah, well, I know it's good to be Jamie Dimon. You have uh, you have friends in in high places, but no, I, I think the um, banking sector is very sick. You know, it's it's not healthy at all. In fact, I think it has a terminal disease. 
uh, of government and, uh, you know, Fed, Fed policy. I mean, I was warning about this crisis for years, just like I warned about the 2008 financial crisis for years. I could see this thing coming from a mile away. You know, when everybody was extolling the virtues of the 0% interest rates and the benefits that, you know, it, it, it had for borrowers, it was great. Uh, Americans could refinance their mortgages and get these rock bottom 30 year fixed rates, you know, at 3%. Some people even got two handles on their 30 year mortgages. The government was able to uh, finance all this debt at lower interest rates, and that kept the debt service costs down. So everybody was benefiting from the ability to lock in long term. Uh, debt at rock bottom rates. And I was one of the only people that I know of that was out there trying to uh, point out the negative for the lender. Hmm. Because what's good for the borrower isn't also good for the lender. If the borrowers are winning by locking in low rates, the lenders are losing at the same time because they're also locked in to low rates, only they're receiving the low rates. They're not paying the low rates. And so I was warning for years, what is going to happen to the holders of this debt, in particular, the banking system, when interest rates eventually rise? And you get to a situation where now money costs 5% and the banks have locked in their portfolios at 1%, 2%, 3%. I said this was going to be a disaster for the banks. And of course, that's exactly what it was. We got the beginning of what would have been a worse financial crisis than 2008 in March of last year. Uh, and that crisis wasn't canceled. It's just been postponed. The Fed was able to hold it in abeyance uh, by announcing a program where the Fed would temporarily take all of that underwater collateral off the books of the banks and replace it with cash, 100 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. The catch was it only good for a year. <laughs> At the end of the year, which is coming up this March, in theory, all those banks have to repay the Fed 100 cents on the dollar of what they borrowed, and they got to take their toxic paper back, uh, which they obviously can't do because they would be bankrupt the minute it got back on their books, which is why they gave it to the, to the Fed in the first place. So how do you see that unraveling then? And, you know, it, what I was wondering when this crisis was unfolding was, is this going to really accelerate the consolidation of banking in America? I mean, this is an opportunity for JP Morgan to swoop in and suck up so many accounts. Um, <clears throat> essentially, yeah, tr trust is going to go where trust is going to go. And um, and do you yeah, see- Yeah, I mean, uh, eventually, you know, there's a tremendous moral hazard here. Uh, because of what the government has done with these deposit uh, guarantees. I mean, we should have no FDIC. Right. The public should know that you put your money at a bank, you're, you're at risk. You're a creditor. And if that bank fails, you could lose your deposits. We, we need that for the public to be better customers when it comes to choosing a bank. But because 
of the government, nobody gives a damn which bank they put their money in, uh, you know, because it doesn't matter. Because if the bank fails, you're going to get your money back. Well, what happened, you know, when we had that Silicon Valley uh, failure and Signature Bank and a few others, the government let the public know that, you know, it's not necessarily true. Your bank might fail and, you know, you could lose money if you have more than the, you know, the, the FDIC covered amount. But it depends, uh, because if the government decides that the bank that you're with is somehow systemically important, then we're going to bail everybody out. But mm-hmm. if we don't think the bank is significant enough, uh, then we won't. And, and so what that did is it created a huge competitive advantage for the big banks, you know, like, you know, J.P. Di- uh, 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 Diamond's bank. You know, all these big banks, everybody knows, well, they're too big to fail. So yeah. there's no question yeah. that if I have my money with these big banks, uh, I'm, I'm good. My deposits are going to be safe. But a lot of these smaller regional banks, you know, kind of mom and pop banks, to the extent that they're mom and pop, but they're smaller banks, uh, you know, it's a question. And so why should I hold a large amount of money at a small bank? When there's a risk that that small bank fails and I, you know, I'm not protected. So I'm going to take my money out and I'm going to give it uh, to these bigger banks. And, and this gives the big banks a competitive edge in the marketplace. And so what ends up happening is the small banks uh, go out of business or they get acquired by the bigger banks because they can't compete because it's not a level playing field. The government has tilted it. Now, of course, the government could have said, look, we're going to insure every deposit up to an unlimited amount of money. Uh, but of course, you know, the FDIC doesn't have the resources to do that. It doesn't even have the resources to insure the deposits that are currently insured. I mean, if a major bank failed, like, like a Bank of America or Wells Fargo, that, that would wipe out the FDIC all by itself. And, and so, you know, the government would have to come and bail it out. But the government is broke. So where does the government get the money? It gets it from the Fed. But the Fed doesn't have any money until it prints it. But when the Fed prints the money, that just means inflation. That means that the Americans or anybody who holds dollars has to pay for that bailout because prices go up. You know, that's what inflation is. It's a tax. It's the expansion of the money supply. And there would be a massive inflation tax if we had a lot of bank failures, which we will have. It's not a question of will banks fail. It's just a question of when. Now, most people are looking at that next fracture line within the banking sector as the commercial real estate industry. That's the next domino that could cause a bit of yeah. a crash. Do you that, see it that way? That's why I've been saying that, that, that the banking system today is in worse shape than it was before it collapsed in, in 2008. You know, it's not just the residential real estate. And I think residential real estate is worse now than it was back then, because mm. back in 2008, when we had that crisis, the problem for the banks was that people were defaulting <coughs> on their mortgages. And when they defaulted and the banks foreclosed, the collateral had lost value. That was the problem. Real estate prices went down. Mm-hmm. And so they were taking a hit mm-hmm. on the foreclosures. And borrowers had an incentive to default because why pay a mortgage? Mm-hmm. You know, your mortgage is 400000 and your house is only worth 300000 Why? Why pay the mortgage? Yeah. I'll just go rent something uh, for less money. 
Well, today, people are not uh, you know, mailing in the keys. They're staying in their homes. They're paying their mortgage. And that's the problem for the banks because the banks now lose money on every mortgage they own. They, they, they would be better off if you defaulted. That way they can get out of jail. They can sell that mortgage. The housing prices haven't crashed. It's the value of the mortgages that have crashed because interest rates have gone up. So now the banks lose money on all the mortgages, not just the ones that default, but the ones that are being paid in full. And people are not leaving uh, to rent because the rents have gone up and their, their mortgage is not because you know it's fixed. Now, maybe their insurance costs have gone up or their property taxes, uh, and you know maybe they just don't pay their maintenance or some things, but uh, they're paying their mortgages because it's, they got them locked in at these low prices. But commercial real estate, which was not even a problem in 2008. In fact, when the Fed slashed interest rates in 2008, 2009 to prop up the economy, that really helped the value of commercial real estate because commercial real estate prices went up as interest rates came down. But now commercial real estate is a massive disaster. Real estate prices have crashed commercial real estate. Prices are down 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% or more. You have office buildings that are empty or significantly empty. You have retail space that is empty. People are working from home. People are shopping from home. So you have all this space on the market. Uh, so rents are falling and the landlords, they don't have 30 year fixed rate mortgages. Commercial real estate loans are shorter term. And so they are maturing, which is good for the lender in that they're not locked into a low rate. But what's happening is as these loans are maturing, the borrowers are walking away. The commercial real estate yeah. lender or borrowers, they don't want these properties. <laughs> they'd rather just default just like the, the homeowners did in 2008 because they're not worth anywhere near what they borrowed to buy them at. Uh, and so the banks are staring at huge losses on defaulting commercial real estate and huge losses on the residential real estate loans that are that are being paid. Uh, so the, the, the banks are a complete uh, disaster thanks to the Fed, thanks to years of artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing and government guarantees, the entire U.S. banking system is insolvent. And w would it be fair to say that, you know, when that when that comes due, so much commercial real estate is held by smaller regional banks, I think like disproportionately higher. And exactly. The exactly. The, the banks that the banks that people are taking their money out of right now, that's what's going on. I mean, it's happening. One of the reasons that these banks had to go to the Fed with their underwater paper was because their customers wanted their money back. They didn't want to leave their money at risk in these regional banks, so they went and withdrew it. But the banks didn't have it because they loaned it out. They loaned it out with 30-year mortgages. They owned mortgage-backed securities. They owned treasuries, which had lost a lot of value. Mm -hmm. So they had to take those bonds which maybe were worth 70 cents on the dollar, give them to the Fed, get a dollar, so they mm -hmm. can give that dollar to their customers, who then took that money and sent it to JP Morgan, yeah, right? Yeah. Or they, you know, they put it into a money market fund, loaned it to the government to get 5% because the bank was paying nothing because they couldn't afford to. But now, how are the banks going to repay the Fed 
the money that they already gave their their customers. They don't have the money anymore, right? How are they? How what are they going to give the Fed? They've got nothing. So obviously, the Fed is going to extend the maturities of these so-called loans, but they're not really loans because the Fed is never getting repaid. So it's again, it's it's a new QE program in disguise. That there it is. Okay, that that was where I was wondering you were going to get to because it's like, yeah, they they can't pay it back. They will not pay it back. So the concept of that being a loan is sort of false because in theory, a loan is something that I give to you and there's an assumption you're going to give yeah. it to me. But if they're just just like those PPP loans, how many yeah. pay those back? Right, 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 right. So it is from your perspective, quantitative easing in disguise, right? That's that's all that it, is. Yes. And, and, and it's going to get bigger. You know, the Fed, the Fed is going to pivot. <laughs> that's the big pivot. It's not about when the Fed is going to cut rates, but when the Fed is going to go back to QE. I think that's mm. coming this year. Even even if they don't cut rates, I think they're going back to quantitative easing. And they could go back to quantitative e easing in a, with a variety of mechanisms. One we just kind of discussed. Another could be when the commercial banking bill comes due or these regional banks become too underwater and we see a similar um, fracture line as we did last March. Like like what, I guess what I'm asking is, is do you think the story from last March is going to repeat this year, but the catalyst will be commercial uh, real estate loans instead. Like, is that a reasonable assumption or prediction? Well, if the Fed just gets out in front of it and extends yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Then, you know, but it's the question is, will the markets react to that? You know, will, will, will they understand what that means, right? That the Fed was just BSing the entire time when it, it, uh, it, it first announced that this one-year loan, that that was just a farce. Just mm -hmm. like when they first started quantitative easing, Ben Bernanke went to Congress and said he wasn't monetizing the debt because it was just temporary, that the Fed was going to sell back all the government bonds that it had taken onto its balance sheet. Well, here we are, what, 15 years later, and the balance sheet is, is much bigger. <clears throat> all the bonds that they bought, they still own, right? even though they've pared it back a trillion or so uh, you know, in the last year, we're still at close to an $8 trillion balance sheet. And when 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 mm -hmm. Powell was talking to Congress about a temporary QE, the balance sheet was barely a trillion. Uh, so, you know, he was lying and I and I pointed it out. But the, the main reason that the Fed is going back to QE is because the alternative, while the correct thing to do is just politically a non-starter, especially in an election year, we are running one trillion dollar deficits, basically a quarter. Even though the official national debt is a little under $2 trillion, which in and of itself is a huge number. Mm. If you just watch the rate of increase of the national debt itself, because that's that doesn't lie. There's no phony accounting. That's just the number. Every quarter, the, the debt is a trillion dollars higher <clears throat> than it was at the beginning of the quarter. So the government is selling all these bonds. Over the course of 2024, over $10 trillion of treasuries matures. And now the government has to sell new treasuries to repay the maturing treasuries. So that's you know ten trillion worth of borrowing, twelve trillion worth of borrowing, plus the four trillion to finance current spending. Uh, who's going to buy that debt? You know, once upon a time the Fed was a big buyer, the biggest buyer of treasuries. Now the Fed is selling. Another big buyer that's not there are Social Security trust funds. Social Security used to be a big buyer of treasuries. Now it's a big seller of treasuries. 
because up until a few years ago, the Social Security program took in more in taxes than it paid out in benefits. Now it's paying out more in benefits than it collects in taxes. So where's the money coming from to make sure the Social Security checks don't bounce? Well, the Social Security trust funds are liquidating their treasuries into the market. So the trust funds are selling treasuries. The treasury is selling treasuries. The Fed is selling treasuries. You know who else is selling treasuries? The Japanese, the Saudis, the Chinese, the Russians. I mean, they probably sold all of theirs already. But who's buying these treasuries? You know, and if there's no one buying them, the price is going to collapse and yields are going to explode. The Fed's not going to let that happen. The Fed's going to come in and be the buyer. But it can't do that without going back to quantitative easing. And that's what's going to happen sometime this year. Which would continue to amplify this. I mean, we're looking at about $34 trillion in debt right now, which, again, I get back to like, debt's the wrong word because debt is a word we use to describe something that is lent to you and the assumption that it'll be given back to me. There's no... There's no assumption that that's getting paid back. So, you know, debt debt is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, And by your uh, analysis here, 34 trillion in debt today is nothing compared to where this will likely end up, right? Oh yeah, well, and the thing is, the people who have loaned the US government money, they actually think they're gonna get paid back. No, they they don't realize that they're just giving this money away. They, they, They actually think their loans. And and that's because they're not worried about the government's ability to pay because the government has a printing press and can print all the dollars they want. Well, what they haven't uh, figured out yet is yes, the government can print all the dollars it wants, but it can't make those dollars buy anything. Mm -hmm. It, it, It can't ascribe purchasing power to the dollars. People just take it for granted that no matter how much money we print, you're going to be able to buy stuff with it. No, there is going to be a point where the dollar collapses and you can't buy very much with the dollar. In fact, it's possible that if we continue this indefinitely, that at the end, you won't be able to buy anything with the dollar. It will be completely worthless. Uh, now, you know, we may be able to stop it from getting that bad, but not without a tremendous amount of pain, uh, which would be required to prevent that outcome. So regional bank exposure, big bank exposure to commercial real estate, Fed gets out in advance of that, new mechanism, quantitative easing, sort of paper over the losses before they become a big problem. Uh, Treasury market, similar strategy. We got more sellers than buyers. So who's the buyer? It's the Fed, quantitative easing. You know, the third party in this conversation has to be the American consumer. And you just mentioned, you know, there'll be a point where the dollar can't buy anything. You retweeted an article this week by Zero Hedge, it was titled uh, something around the consumer doom spending trend and described the American consumer throwing their hands up and saying, forget it, we're not even gonna try to manage our debt. Uh, We're just gonna maintain our lifestyle regardless of our income and inflation. And American households right now owe on average $103,000 per household. That's that's pretty wild. Uh, Yeah, and you know, that doesn't even take into account their share of the total U.S. debt, funded and unfunded liabilities, which is sure, several sure. hundred thousand dollars per family. So families are uh, even more broke than they realize. Uh, but interesting, that article was actually an article from Shift Gold that that uh, ended up on uh, on Zero Hedge. So they were quoting me, and then I retweeted 
<laughs> their quote. But, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about on my podcast uh, about credit and, you know, last week, consumer credit card debt hit an all time record high and total consumer indebtedness hit an all time record high above five trillion for the first time. And remember, these are the same consumers who are on the hook to repay the national debt. These are the only people the American government can tax and they're broke themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't get blood from a stone, right? So it's all gonna be uh, from the printing press. But one of the things that I talked about on my podcast is that once you run up an amount of debt on your credit cards and you know that you can't pay it back, right? You've already come to that decision. Hey, I'm never paying this money back. I'm gonna just go bankrupt. Because when you go bankrupt, you just discharge all that debt, right? Mm -hmm. So once you've made that decision, right? Okay, I'm just gonna go bankrupt. Your incentive between that point and your bankruptcy is to just build up the debt as high as you can. Sure. Right? So what, everything that you buy is free. Once you've made the decision, I owe 50,000, I can never repay it. I'm gonna go bankrupt. Well, let me run it up to 60,000, 70,000. Let me borrow as much money as these idiot banks are willing to lend me. Mm -hmm. And then only when I run out of credit, only when I can't get one more credit card, I can't get one more loan, I'm totally out of credit, that's when I go and claim bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, I'm gonna get as much as I can because it's all free. I'm not gonna pay, all I have to do is pay the minimum interest payment yeah. So I can borrow another 10,000. I just got to pay an extra 50 bucks a week, right? Until they, they shut me down. So I think that's what's happening. I think a lot of Americans are willing to spend. It's not because they're resilient. It, it's just because it's all free. What, they don't care anymore uh, what anything costs. I mean, they're, they just, they just want to get it or they need it. Uh, and, and so this is just the end of it. But at some point, you know, these banks are going to cut people off. And the losses are going to be horrific. That's another thing that the lenders are going to lose. They're going to lose on a lot of this credit card debt. We have record credit card debt. At the same time, we have record credit card interest rates. It's like higher interest rates haven't stopped people from borrowing. They keep on borrowing. You know, the, that's why the Fed is winning. One of the reasons the inflation fight is inflation is also the expansion of credit. It's not just money, but credit because credit acts as money. You can buy stuff with credit and credit keeps expanding. Well, all these loans are gonna go bad. Auto loans are gonna go bad, right? Uh, what about all these people who have bought now to pay later? Who's financing all those things? Mm -hmm. they're, gonna, they're never gonna pay, right? I always said it was buy now, pay never. Mm -hmm. That's what was going on. Uh, and so all of this consumer credit is going to collapse and the lenders, you know, the banking system, this is another way they're going to lose. So if if this consumer debt bubble bursts like that, it's obviously <clears throat> lenders who are on the hook. In that scenario, you could probably expect the exact same activity, right? As you would with the commercial real estate exposure, for example, Fed's not going to let a systemic banking crisis unfold. If they can see it happening, they'll step in, bail out the banks who owe who are holding the consumer debt, same as the banks that are holding the commercial real estate debt, yeah. same as the companies, that, countries who are owning the treasuries, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's what's happened. Every time we've had a problem, Congress and Wall Street and everybody have relied on the Fed to solve it. Mm -hmm. 
But the Fed doesn't solve problems. The Fed creates problems. All the problems that we're asking the Fed to solve, it created. And its solutions just make them bigger. But they also numb you to the pain, right? Uh, they allow you to kick the can down the road <clears throat> because the, the Fed doesn't have any magic. All it has is inflation. That's the only thing it can do. So its response to every problem is to create more inflation, to expand the money supply, right? To lower interest rates, to increase credit. And so now inflation has become the problem. People didn't mind inflation in the past because they didn't notice it as much. And because a lot of the inflation was making them richer because it pushed up their stock portfolios. It pushed up uh, their, their real estate holdings. But now the inflation is showing up more in the supermarket, at the mm -hmm. gas station, everywhere. Prices are going up. They're going way up. This is the end result of all the inflation that the Fed has been creating for a decade or more. And it's just getting started. We are experiencing the tip of an inflation iceberg. It's not going back down to 2%. The Fed is delusional if it actually believes this. Uh, we're going to see much, much higher rates of inflation um, in the future than we've experienced in, in the recent past. And if the Fed tries to bail everybody out again, bail out the banking system from the problems we've been discussing, it's just going to throw gasoline on that inflation fire. So if I were to if I were to dig up a counterpoint to that, Peter, you know, what I would say is that is that technology is deflationary, right? And you think back to like the advent of the tractor, for example, when tractors became available for purchase, there was huge protests in America because they were going to put local laborers and farmers out of work. And that happened simultaneously. Productivity went way up because tractors are more efficient than uh, 10 people, you know? And so the short-term impact was job loss. The long-term impact was escalation of productivity, which is good for the economy. And obviously that's a big conversation right now with AI. So what's your take on that? And we're seeing the same thing happen right now. I mean, Citigroup, 20,000 jobs. Yes, some of those are from squeezed margins, but a lot of it is from more efficient processes. Amazon, yeah, I mean, Google cutting jobs. You have, you have competing forces. Yeah. You have market forces, capitalism, which drives prices down, which is the beauty of capitalism. It, it, it helps living standards go up by bringing the cost of living down. That's why if you look at the CPI in 1900 and compare it to the CPI in 1800, prices are half what they were in, in, in 1800, in 1900, then 1800. Prices yeah. were cut in yeah. half yeah. over 100 years <clears throat> because the free market uh, was lowering prices. That is the natural tendency of prices in a capitalist economy. But when we went to a fiat money system with the introduction of the Fed in 1913, and now you have the Fed, an engine of inflation, uh, the Fed is causing prices to go up by creating inflation. So you have two forces that work in, uh, a counter what to one another. You have the free market pushing prices down, and you have the central bank and the government pushing prices up. Now, prices have gone up a lot since the introduction of the Federal Reserve because our money has lost 99% of its value mm -hmm. <laughs> since then. Um, but imagine how much higher prices would be if it wasn't for productivity, which has been bringing prices down. 
but it's just that government through inflation has pushed them up even faster. Now, in some areas where the productivity is more extreme, like, you know, tech, we've seen TV prices, computer prices, cell phone prices come down, right? Despite all this inflation. And that just means the productivity has been so strong that it's overcome the headwind of all the government created inflation. But mm. absent that inflation, TVs mm. would be even cheaper. It right? would be. Uh, computers would be even cheaper. And that would be a good thing. See, it's a lie that the government has told us that we need inflation, that prices have to go up. Because if prices went down, the whole economy would collapse. That's just a lie. You know, Everybody yeah. benefits from falling prices, including the businesses, because they make more money because when prices go down, they sell more. People can afford to buy more stuff at lower prices. What businesses are concerned about is their margin, not the selling price. If the selling price goes down, but their costs go down more, mm -hmm. that's a win. That's a win. Uh, so falling prices are good. Uh, it's always been a lie that they're bad and that rising prices are necessary. Now, the question is, does AI have the potential to unleash such tremendous growth in productivity in an extremely short period of time that it's a get out of jail free card on a lot of these problems? Yeah. You know, some people think so. I, 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 I don't. I think it's going to take longer for all of the benefits of AI uh, you know, to, 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 to be realized, uh, you know, but they will over time. So sure, there, there are reasons to be optimistic uh, because of the ingenuity of, of, of free people. Uh, but government has created a lot of problems uh, that are going to blow up first. <laughs> I mean, I think if it's a race, can, can AI save us before this thing explodes? And my guess would be no. I think we're going we're, we're gonna to have to pay the piper. Uh, right. But but but, you know, the the, re, the rebuilding, the recovery process could be made a lot easier with the assistance of of AI. And if if I understand you correctly and you let me know if I'm off track here, those same deflationary forces are the Fed's best friend in that if let's use really simple numbers here, you tell me if I'm off base. AI is causing maybe a, let's just call it a ten percent deflation, ten percent deflationary force that allows the Fed to then inflate the money supply by twelve percent, but only report a two percent inflation. Yes, it, yes, deflation helps the Federal Reserve steal your productivity gains yes. without yes. you knowing okay. it. Right? Because let's say my cost of living <laughs> would have gone down by ten percent. Well, that would have been good. Right. If if, you know, if my health care was 10 percent cheaper and my food was 10 percent cheaper and my energy was 10 percent cheaper, if everything I needed to buy was 10 percent cheaper. Hey, that's great. I know I got more money to buy other things. Mm. But if the government takes advantage of that and creates all this inflation, you know, and prices go up by 2 percent instead, I've lost all those benefits that I never even knew I was going to get. So that's why the government loves inflation, because when the government taxes you you know, legitimately, when they actually take your money away from you and you see the money coming out of your paycheck every every week, you could be pissed at all the money that you could have had, but that you don't because the government took it. So mm -hmm. you know that, you know you lost money and you, you could get angry at the government. But when the government doesn't take your money, 
Instead, they just take your purchasing power and prices go up. You don't get mad at the government because you don't realize that the government is the reason your prices went up. You get mm -hmm. mad at the guy that raised the prices. You get mad at the store, right? You get, you get mad at the, at the farmer or, or the oil company, or you get mad at Putin because you think he's the reason that prices are going up or, you know, whatever. Mm. But the, that, that, that serves the government's purpose. They get to steal your money, but you don't even know that they took it, right? You, they, and then they help you blame it on somebody else. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah. but that's what the Fed is hoping for. If they get bailed out with such a massive boom in productivity, uh, you know, that they get out of jail. Yeah. And if we realize so. So essentially what, what we're saying here is if we were to realize that massive boom in productivity, most people actually would not realize that boom in productivity because any gains they would make in savings would be papered over with with the necessary quantitative easing from the Fed standpoint that's going to have to occur. And we're just going to maintain like a nice three to six percent inflation rate, regardless of any productivity gains we make. C correct. Exactly. And, you know, again, none of it is necessary. It's politically expedient, but it's not right. necessary right. from an economic perspective. In fact, it's the, it's it's not only not necessary, it's counterproductive. It's harmful. But, you know, also what people have to understand is this is not happening in America in isolation. The whole world um, stands to benefit from increased productivity. And the question is, in that world, why does the dollar need to remain the reserve currency? See, that's a wild card because there's so many dollars that are held abroad and our economy is so screwed up as a result of relying on this huge subsidy uh, where we can consume without producing, where we can borrow without savings and have this whole consumer-based you know, bubble economy mm. uh, built on this foundation of the dollar being the reserve currency when that status could be lost you know, any day. And um, the uh, AI, uh, uh, you know, revolution may in fact accelerate <laughs> the, the, the demise of the dollar. I mean, we've already accelerated ourselves by weaponizing it and creating additional political incentives in addition to the economic incentives to de-dollarize. Mm. So, you know, that happening too, I, I don't see how, you know, AI would, would, would save us from that. Okay. All right. I want to I want to cover another subject before um, while I have time here. Trump uh, maybe surprised uh, everybody with a landslide victory in Iowa. Did that surprise you? And and what's the significance of that win in Iowa for former President Donald Trump? No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Trump is very popular within the Republican Party, um, far more popular than the, the people who were running against him. And I think the left uh, has uh, turned him into a martyr, created even more sympathy mm. for the president, uh, and, and kind of galvanized his supporters uh, into, uh, you know, seeing that, you know, he is the guy that's trying to drain the swamp, even though when he was there, he kind of became part of the swamp. But they see him as an enemy of, 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 of the deep state. And the fact that they've, you know, trumped up all these phony charges against him uh, just validates what he's saying. Uh, and, and so it's almost like, you know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? The, the, the establishment, who do they hate most? They hate Trump. Well, if they hate Trump, he must be great. 
they, they're mm. afraid of Trump. They don't want Trump to be in office because he is uh, going to endanger this status quo that I don't like. Right. He's he, and, and so he's just they galvanized all this support. So he's just such a popular figure now uh, that there's nobody that's going to beat him mm. uh, in the Republicans. Right. Mm. And, and of course, Republicans have to embrace him. They have to endorse him because if they don't, it's at their own peril, because now they're going to have to feel the backlash because they need those votes themselves. Yeah. And if they don't support Trump, somebody is going to challenge them for their seat who, who does support Trump. <clears throat> and, and so it doesn't surprise me that he won by a wide margin. And it, it won't surprise me uh, when he wins the general election. I mean, I think the only chance <clears throat> that the Democrats have is Biden not being on the ticket. <clears throat> but Camilla Harris, you know, she's she's as unpopular as Biden. So if she's at the top of the ticket, they're still going to lose. And I don't know how they get rid of um, Biden and then bypass Harris. Because there's going to be a big backlash there if they just, you know, they're going to say, what is it, because she's a woman or because she's black? I mean, I, you know, so it's like they, 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 they're stuck with Biden because if they get rid of Biden, then they got to have Camilla Harris, you know, <laughs> you know, unless they get lucky and they both die or something. I don't know how they get out of that politically to put somebody else in front of her. Um, yeah. Unless they just convince her to resign or something. I, I, I don't know. Right. But I don't even know who, who do they got lined up? Gavin Newsom. Well, that's I mean, the guy. I mean, I, that would be the guy, wouldn't it? That they're they're just. But I mean, I don't. I mean, California is a disaster. I yeah. mean, they're going to win California. It's like the Democrats are going to win California anyway. So, what good is it to put a governor in California? You're going to win that state. Mm. There's no way Trump was going to get California. Uh, mm. So I don't know. You know that 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 that, that kind of guy is going to do it. So I don't even know who the Democrats got up their sleeves because the problem is the economy is terrible as much as they want to dress it up and put lipstick on the pig right uh bidenomics is a complete failure not that there is anything to bidenomics uh but whatever it is you know that they're trying to sell <laughs> the public ain't buying it they can't afford it mm. right the price of everything is has gone up and and so people are going to want to throw the bums out who are they going to hold responsible for this lousy economy uh, you know, the Democrats keep saying the economy is great. Why don't the voters understand that? The voters understand because the economy is lousy. Why don't the politicians get that? <laughs> why, do, why doesn't Wall Street get that? Well, maybe they do. They're just lying about it. But the public is living it and they don't like it. <laughs> they don't like working two or three jobs. They'd rather have one job. <laughs> but, you know, now they have no leisure. They can't afford stuff. Uh, prices have gone up. So, it's a lousy economy. It's going to be a pocketbook election. Uh, and also, if, you know, if war and peace, I mean, look at all these wars we got going on now. We didn't have any war when Trump was president. I mean, people are going to look back at Trump's presidency and say, hey, things are pretty good when Trump was president compared to how bad they are now, even though they weren't great back then. But by comparison, uh, they were a lot better. So Trump's got a great uh, script to, uh, to run on. Uh, and, and look at Biden. There's never been a president as unpopular as Biden. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, Richard Nixon, before he resigned, wasn't as unpopular, I don't think, as Joe Biden. Yeah, that's And he's going to be even more unpopular on Election Day. 
Yeah, it, it is shocking. He is the uh, yeah the lowest rating of any U.S. president in the history of the United States. Simultaneously, I saw an interview recently where he was asked if he was going to run in the election, and his answer was, "Well, I have to because someone's got to beat Trump." And I thought, <laughs> "You're the least liked president in the history of the United States. You have to get the lowest chance of anybody." Uh, I, I agree with your thoughts on Newsom when. That conversation began making headlines. You know, they were parading him around China and sort of testing, I guess, his his uh, reputation. I don't know. I thought the same thing you did. I was like, this is this guy's governing a bankrupt state. Everything he's done has been a disaster. Why would anybody consider him to be fit to run the country? But then I thought, man, the media will spin any narrative around him, brand him however is necessary, and he'll come out looking like. Superboy, you know, and and maybe it's actually feasible that he is dressed up. I mean, when I when I when the Democrats ran Biden last time, I actually thought Peter that they were just throwing the election. I was like, oh, they're running the guy that they know this is going to lose because they just want to give Trump four more years to to rebuild the Democratic Party and come back with a real candidate, you know, in twenty twenty four. That obviously wasn't the case, but but uh, you know, wilder things have happened. Well, remember. Biden would not have won <clears throat> if the media didn't help him. I mean, if they had accurately reported that Hunter Biden story when it yeah. broke, yeah. he would have lost Yeah, because it was a close election. You look at the swing states, right? The states that decided it. Those states, many of them would have gone the other way if it had been known that, that, that um, Joe Biden was a traitor which basically he was. When you sell out your country for money, when you send your son around the world to recycle bribes, which is what he was doing. I mean, they were laundering money through multiple uh, accounts that they set up. They set up these shell companies and they laundered the money through these shell companies and then they distributed it out to all the Biden family members, right? This was racketeering. This was influence peddling. It's bribery. And who were they taking their money from? The very people they claim are the enemies, the Chinese, the, the Ukrainians or the Russians. Um, so if they had told this story, there's no way people would have voted for Joe Biden. Um, right. So they had to cover it up and they're still covering it up. But imagine how much more dirt there's going to be out there on Joe Biden come Election Day. And they don't have Twitter anymore to whitewash all this stuff. Elon Musk yeah. is not going to police this. I mean, the truth is going to get out on social media. It's already getting out. Mm. Look at look at look at how much impact Tucker Carlson has yeah. on on Twitter now. So that they can't stop the truth from getting out on Biden. Mm. So I mean, but you know, there's no way that they that that, that Biden can win. Uh, but again, how do they get rid of him? <laughs> That's the problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Unless, unless, unless something happens to him, he gets into an accident, and then something right. happens to, and then something happens to Camilla Harris. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay. Like, right. You know, maybe the Clintons have a plan for that. They, you know. <laughs> they're supposedly pretty good at that. Yeah, supposedly. <laughs> I right, look. Let's wrap it there, Peter. This is great. Uh, always fun chatting with you and and picking your brain. I appreciate you coming on and getting back in front of my audience. Thank you. All right. Hey, my pleasure. Don't forget, you know, I got my own podcast, The Peter Schiff Show. People can tune into that. And um, if you really want to protect yourself, we started off at the beginning of the program. Uh, you know, this is inevitable. This dollar crisis, 
uh, inflation, maybe hyperinflation. I don't know how much longer you have to get your financial ducks in a row, uh, but I would not wait. I wouldn't press my luck. I'd contact my representatives at Europe Pacific Asset Management. Go to our website. Uh, there's an 800, our toll-free number there you can call or you can uh, communicate uh, you know, from the website. But talk to my advisors uh, about you know, moving some money over for me to manage retirement accounts, uh, taxable accounts, uh, getting out of harm's way. I have a family of mutual funds that I manage, the Pacific funds. You can do it yourself. You can incorporate my mutual funds if you've got an account at Fidelity or Schwab or any of the big discount brokerage firms. All of my mutual funds are available. There's a no-load version. Uh, you, know, you could build a portfolio that I manage uh, with the type of assets that I think are going to thrive uh, in the economic environment that lies ahead. And don't forget you know, to buy your gold and silver. Make sure you have you know, at least 5 or 10% of your portfolio in physical gold, silver that you own, uh, you know, that you have control over. Uh, contact my guys over at shiftgold.com. Go to the website, you know, shiftgold.com, and you, know, you can call a phone number and talk to the representatives there. But you know, gold, I think right now, it's just over 2,000 an ounce. People think this is the ceiling. I think it's the floor. So mm -hmm. I think you're buying near the bottom when you're buying around 2,000 an ounce. And silver, they're giving it away. It's still half of its uh, record high uh, that it has a double top from 1980. And then again in um, um, 2011. Uh, so, I mean, there's not many assets that you can buy for half of what it cost you to buy them in 1980. Silver is one of them. Uh, but it's not going to be this cheap for long. So you can buy silver at Shift Gold as well. And, and my audience is quite familiar when gold starts to run, the uh, slingshot effect that occurs to the silver price is very, can be very, very dramatic. Um, appreciate that. So check out Shift Gold, check out Euro Pacific, Europac.com, and of course, the Peter Schiff Show on YouTube and Spotify. Uh, Peter, once again, appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.